Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. One big difference between public and private markets is the more limited financial data for the latter. Doug Lawson started Mark to Market to address this gap, and we talk about the challenges. They also collect transaction data, and we discuss something that's been a hot topic for a few years, private company valuations. We talk about their st strategies to use these and what their recent movements have been. Doug gives some great insight. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries.harborandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Doug Lawson, who is CEO and co-founder of Mark to Market. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you very much, Brian. So, as usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So, can you perhaps tell us how you became involved in venture capital and came to found Mark to Market? Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, initially, I I trained as a chartered accountant, like a lot of people who find their way into finance. And then, after that, I moved into corporate finance, so doing mergers and acquisitions, advisory work. So I did that for a bit, and then I moved into onto the buy side, so into investing. And um, I worked on, I was one of the managers of a number of private equity venture capital trusts. And from there, I moved into AIM Venture Capital Trust and a um, smaller public company investment. So I moved from the private markets into the public markets. So I did, through through all of those roles, through corporate finance, private equity, and public equities, I I used a lot of different data tools, and I usually found myself trying to clean up a lot of the data that was provided, and found kind of use my own techniques to figure stuff out and find very granular bits of data buried away in places that you know are difficult to find. So that kind of led to me starting Mark to Market. I thought that I could, suppose I thought I could do better in terms of finding and presenting data, especially on smaller private companies. Mm -hmm. So it's perhaps worth giving an overview of where Mark to Market is now. And we'll maybe come back to the path that is taken from that little idea to getting to where you are. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I suppose, so So where we are now, so we're, we're, uh, we're an Edinburgh-based business, we're, I think we're 31 or 32 people and now we're growing very quickly. We started about, well, I mean, we incorporated oh, four and a half years ago or so, but, but you know, like all these things, they, you know, it takes time to uh, flesh out the plan and to, uh, you know, we, we had to build the software and we had to build the, uh, the sort of data lake as well, because we're a software business, but we're a data business too. And we launched our first product in 2018, although like lots of first products, it, you know, it was it was it was good, but it's you know it's improved a lot since then. Really, what we do is we we have um, it, it's a data platform for any kind of participants in the private market. So anybody that's advising private companies or investing in private companies or wants to understand more about private companies is a potential subscriber to to mark to market. And, and the way that we differentiate ourselves from other data platforms is that we take a very forensic approach to identifying, it's kind of looking under rocks as you know, one of the things that we say. So we take a very forensic approach to identifying and uh, cleaning up data. 
And as I said, that is particularly kind of at the small end of the market where information is particularly unstructured and opaque. We bring all of that together, we clean it, we structure it, and we present it on a platform to our to our customers. Yeah, and I thought it might be interesting to dig in a little bit more into that because you, you mentioned the outlining problem solving about trying to find data. Maybe for, as a high-level overview, what is the real problem with data in private companies? Why is it so hard to get? Yeah. Okay. So, so I suppose it's it's pretty much by design. So, there is no obligation to volunteer lots of information about your private company. So, so, so why would you do it? Um. So, in general, private companies only disclose what they absolutely have to disclose. And a cl- a classic example of that is that if you're doing less than ten million pounds of revenue, you file abbreviated accounts rather than rather than full accounts. So, to all intents and purposes, you, nobody knows what your what your revenue is. If you're a public company, that obviously changes, and the disclosure requirements are far far greater. But as long as you remain a private company, the disclosure requirements are not particularly onerous, and you only disclose in general what you absolutely have to. Which means that if you're just relying on information at company's house, then you're going to have a very a kind of a limited picture of what a uh, specific, what any company does. Yeah, I, 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 I can speak from personal experience where I've had that frustration many times when you go to companies' accounts, you get yeah. abbreviated accounts, or even well-established companies, you'll get the accounts that are published nine months after the yeah. year end. So every, everything that's in it is 12 or 18 months kind of out of date, which is very frustrating. Which then raises the problem about, well, what can you do about that? What else can yeah. you find? <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. So, so that's a good question. So I think that I'll, I'll answer that in, in two parts, Brian. So I think the first part is a key, a key part of our platform is what we call deal data. And, and deal data is information that we gather on transactions that happen. So uh, uh, M&A transactions and fundraising events. So... You know, company A acquires company B. The reason that information is really valuable to people is that if we both, if if Brian's company has been acquired and I'm advising a company that's very similar to Brian's company, I really want to know what Brian's company was sold for because that gives me some evidence about what my client might be worth. So if your company sold for one and a half times revenue and eight times EBITDA earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization, then that's that's really valuable information to me because I can say, well, Brian's company sold for that. And if I apply those multiples to my client, that means my client's worth this. So that's, you know, that that's very valuable if you're in a negotiation and somebody's saying, well, your company's only worth five times EBITDA, for example. You could say, well, hang on a minute, this company sold for eight times. So, so that's really valuable information. So our deals database, we enrich that database over time. And what I mean by that is that when a deal happens, if it's a private company acquiring another private company, on the day that deal completes or the day after or shortly after it completes, there may or may not be some kind of press release saying this has happened. But in nine times out of 10, or arguably 99 times out of 100, 
if it's a private company acquiring a private company, it might tell you that the deal has happened, but it's it won't tell you what price was paid by the buyer. It won't tell you what multiple of EBITDA that was, what multiple of revenue that was. There won't be any of that information. They're very cagey just, still about the private information. It, exactly. They're very cagey. And, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. But by and large, there will be very limited information about that deal on day one. Now, the obvious thing to do is to say, well, okay, I've got, I found this press release on a deal. Company A has acquired company B. And this is what company B company A does, company B does, and you collect all of that information. But when it comes to the consideration paid and the multiples paid, those are not available. Any, any, any. And we have that same issue. We have that same issue. However, what we do, which differentiates us from the others, is that we continue to track the buyer and the target company and indeed the seller over time. And the reason we do that is because as the companies involved in the deal, as time elapses, the companies involved in the deal will have to disclose th- certain things. And these things tend to be buried away on you know, page 56 of uh, an annual report in note 24, line 16 or whatever. They're, 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 they're not obvious. But if you know where to find that information, you can find that information. And if you know, what you have to do is you have to triangulate bits of information from different documents. And if you understand what you're doing, then you can triangulate, you can pull all of that together, and you can start to enrich the data that you have around that deal. Now, it may take six months, it may take nine months, it may take 12 months. But that information continues to be valuable for a period of time after the deal happens. And that information is, it depends who you speak to. Some people think that information is valuable for three years. Some people think it's valuable for five years or whatever. So to come back to my analogy about, you know, Brian's company has just sold for eight times EBITDA. If I'm advising a company that's similar to Brian's company, even if your deal happened a year ago, if I have that data, that's still extremely valuable to me. So continuing to track businesses involved in m activity, continuing to track all of their filings and extracting information from those filings, pulling it all together, cleaning it up, that's what we continue to do. And that's why we can build up a database that has a lot more deal values, multiples, et cetera, than, than, than other databases. So the natural question then is to what degree can you automate this process? Because it seems to me that, from my experience, lots of people do the same thing in different ways, where you get some companies will disclose, okay, here's all my acquisition data from last year in this note, whereas other people will do that differently, whatever. And there's a lot of private companies. So do you have someone analyzing these manually? To what extent can you automate doing all this? Yeah, so, so, so we use a combination of, so the mark-to-market team is split up between, obviously we have business development people, everybody has that. The rest of the team is engineering and data. So we have our software engineering team and we have a data team. And I guess that very simply, the engineering team's job is to 
build the tooling that allows us to collect the data and to build the front end, which is what customers see and what they use. And the data team's job is to collect, check, and clean data. So on the automation point, you're absolutely right. So there is no consistency or there's limited consistency in the way that companies present information on an acquisition, for example. So what that means is that there are a number of different places you could look for information pertaining to the acquisition. It could be a business combination note, it could be a post-balance sheet event note, it could be a, 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 an acquisition note. Or, there, there, there are lots of different places. So you have to understand where to look. Now, the bigger the data set that you build up, the, the, the more that you can start to automate because you, 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 you build up a, a training set effectively for the tech and the tech can then say, okay, well, I'm, you know, I know that I should be looking, I'm going to, I'm going to scan a document, you know, in layman's terms, I can, I can scan a document and I can look for the word consideration or I can scan a document and I can look for the word business combination you can scan those documents and you can try to pull out you can try to pull out common terms common references to the information that you're looking for you can only do that effectively if you have a big training set a big data set you can't do that on day 1 because there's nothing for the machine to learn from but the bigger your data set gets the more effective that automation become the more accurate that automation becomes but fundamentally because the information is so unstructured we can be incredibly efficient at gathering it because we use technology to help us do that but we still have a big team of analysts who are checking that data and cleaning it if necessary and building new data sets for the machine to learn from okay so effectively, you've got an AI engine that's doing the first pass. Correct, exactly. And there's some things where it's a bit easier. So, you know, you've got, for example, um, you know, if you're pulling in information from, uh, you know, a balance sheet, you know, ca cash is cash. It's pretty consistent when you look at a balance sheet. A balance sheet may look different, but then you're going to find probably a cash line on every balance sheet, assuming they have cash on every balance sheet that you look at. So some things are easier than a others. debtor's line or a creditor's line instead. Sometimes, but. yeah, maybe. But then, but then again, you want to understand. Well, okay. Well, I want to. You know, I'm looking for. Uh, trade creditors, or I'm looking for deferred revenues, and you know, software company might have deferred revenue but i don't know a retail company probably doesn't and you know so you get all these variances between different sectors as well that makes it all interesting but i guess that's one of the reasons we exist is to make make sense all make sense of all of that and in terms of so thinking over you, you've now been around for about well almost four years since you produced your pro yeah. first product how has your perspective on these things changed and how has the demand from clients changed as uh, you've developed? I think that probably what's changed is a realization that I guess that, you know, that we've seen some changes in the way that people, our customers work. And we've seen obviously some changes in the market as well. So in terms of the way our customers work, I mean, they want, they want their staff to be as efficient as possible. And they want their staff to be doing high value work. So if you're a, a corporate finance analyst, for example, 
or a private equity analyst, cleaning up data is not is not particularly high value work. You know, you know. I guess that what you really want is for that to be taken care of, so you can push a few buttons, and you you get the output that you're looking for. And then what's much higher value is then taking that output and analyzing it or interpreting it or whatever. So so we've seen that becoming, you know, more and more the case that that, you know, I mean you you still have you still hear a lot of the senior people, the partners and the managing directors saying, well, you know, the anal- the analysts still have to learn. So it's you know it's quite important <laughs> to some of these things. But you know, there comes a point where actually, you know, you 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 know you don't want to spend your life doing these these things is maybe not that fulfilling and um, it's maybe not particularly profitable as well. So, th- so there's, there's that. I think there's also the fact that because there's so much data out there and it could be financial data, it could be, you know, our platform pulls in a lot of what we call alternative data from other sources. And you could find yourself as sourcing information intelligence data from, from multiple, multiple different places. And what you really want is a system that kind of triangulates all of that, pulls it all together into the right place. And some of the bigger houses are are sort of building their own tools, their own engines, where they're they're finding best of breed data from different sources. So it could be, you know, best of breed, uh, I don't know, um, valuation data and best of breed, I don't know, satellite data or or whatever, and pulling it all together. And building their own engines, but obviously that's a really expensive thing to do, and that's something that is probably not on the roadmap of 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 most advisory firms, most private equity firms. I mean, you know, if you're huge, you can throw millions of dollars at doing that kind of thing. If you're if you're not, you 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 probably can't. But I think that there's definitely whether you're building your own proprietary system or you're using somebody else's. There's definitely a realization that you know you want to be able to just coming back to that expression, you know, push a few buttons and get a really high quality output. And do you, you think know, c- customers' expectations get higher on that? Because this is one of the things that treat me a little bit. Because you spoke about there's lots of data out there, and I think everybody's expectation now is that there's more and more data available, and consequently you feel like you always want more data, and it should you should be able to get it. Yeah. So, so are you seeing clients being more demanding, or? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think they are, and I think that's, I think that's sort of fair, actually. I think that, you know, the, I think what one challenge that you always have is that if you're trying to pull together, we have company profile, so we, you know, you can search for companies on Mark to Market, and you'll get a profile of that company you're looking for, or you can search for specific. Company, you can do a market mapping exercise and you get a bunch of profiles on, on companies in that market. And what we do is we, we pull information from all these different sources, but that that's easier said than done because companies don't necessarily have the same identifier at different sources. If a company has a, an online presence in 100 different places, uh, review sites, news sites, job sites, its own website, et cetera, et cetera. It might be referred to completely differently in all these places. It could be referred to as a brand name, as a trading name, as a legal entity, et cetera, et cetera. So so bringing all that together is is pretty difficult. But I guess that, that, you know, I think customers understand that 
if it's not there, you can't just make it up. You know, if, if it's not there on our platform, then it's usually because it doesn't exist rather than, you know, because we haven't found it, you know, and we can't just, we can't just sort of make things up. But, but I, it's definitely, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, a, a customer, I think, will always look at a data platform and say, well, can I do this better? And so am I getting a return on investment from this? So can I employ an analyst to do what this platform is doing? And will that analyst do it faster and better? So that's the whole efficiency argument. And I think that's a pretty easy one to win. And then the second one is the whole insight thing. So just taking the UK, there are over 6 million registered entities in the UK. Now, a lot of those are of no interest to any advisor or investor. It's one-man bands, it's dormant companies, it's holding companies, et cetera, et cetera. But it gives an idea of kind of the, the, the size of the universe. And I think that without using data tools that, that, have, that allow you to screen and filter and search in a, a simple, meaningful way, it's just, it's too big a task to take on manually. And, and what that means is that you, you run the risk of missing out on the next interesting thing because you just can't keep on top of all of that stuff. So that's not really an efficiency argument. That's more a, an insight thing. It's like we have to be able to deliver insights to our customers that they wouldn't otherwise find because it's just there's too much to disseminate. There's too much to, to filter through. Yeah, which kind of brings me on to one of the topics that I was, and actually the original reason I thought about getting you on, which is that you've got lots of data on various things and valuations in particular is a hot topic in the market just now. And I feel like every podcast or every second podcast I've had in the last sort of year or so, someone has come on and said, oh, valuations are a bit high just now. And people will be saying that even long before I started the podcast. So I, I think... It's an area that's interesting uh, for a lot of listeners. So firstly, I'd, thought I'd ask about what sort of methodologies do when you look at valuations? Are you simply looking at here's the transactions or mm-hmm. you know, what, what are the things are you doing when you're helping people value companies? Yeah, so, so our, our view is that when it comes to our valuation data, we collect, we try to collect the best data that's out there and provide audit trails to prove to our customers that it's the best data and it's reliable. But it's kind of, we then sort of say to the customer, you're the, you guys are the professionals. So you're the advisors, you're the investors, you know what to do with this data. You do whatever you need to do, whatever you feel is appropriate with this data. That's kind of the, the sort of core offering. Here's the data you take it and interpret it as you as you see fit. But in terms of kind of providing insights to investors, we do things like we produce a monthly valuation barometer, which just tracks activity over the last month, where we look at how valuations are trending. And then we do quarterly indices. So, I mean, we call them the March market valuation indices. So it's kind of like, this is a bit of a grand term, but, but it's like FTSE indices, but for UK private companies. So we, you know, we have our own small cap index and we have a mid cap index, but we also have a micro cap index and we have a nano cap index because that's really interesting to some of our customers. So 
because it's all very well saying, well, valuations are trending up. But if you looked at 2020, for example, you, you know, you had valuations trending up you know, expanding rapidly, multiples expanding rapidly in some sectors and either flatlining or declining in other sectors. And the aggregate effect may be that you get an upward pressure in the whole market and valuations. But if you start drilling down into sectors, into deal sizes and things like that, it's a very different, it's a very different story. I think everybody sort of understands that is that, you know, when you know, in, in 2020, what did people want? People wanted the COVID winners or whatever you want to call them. So people wanted, you know, software companies or that have lots of recurring contractual recurring revenues or companies that were benefiting from working from, you know, people working from home or, you know, that, you know, food delivery companies or, or whatever. Those were, you know, the winners, but there were also losers. And I think that it, it, just because somebody's software company has doubled in value because it's, I don't know, its earnings have gone up. I'll, I'll get the maths wrong here, but its earnings have gone up 25% and its um, its multiple has gone up 25% or whatever. I don't know if that, that I don't think that works, but you get the point. It it, it doesn't mean that my my precision engineering business has doubled in value. It doesn't mean that the multiple in my precision engineering business has gone from five to 10, just because a software multiple of the same time period has gone from five to 10. So you've got to look under the bonnet and you've got to look at sectors and the specific characteristics of those sectors and deal sizes as well. So, you know, you could have people often talk about, and you'll remember this from the public markets, Brian, that, that, that actually in periods of sort of, distress or perceived distress in the markets, people look for kind of liquidity. You know, people want bigger, more liquid holdings. And I think to an extent, you see a bit of that in the private markets as well. It's people, if you, you know, you have to invest in something and it's a private company, you're going to perceive a larger company as as safer and more secure. So you'll see all other things being equal, you'll see demand for larger private companies increasing. And therefore, prices going up and demand for smaller private companies decreasing and therefore price price, um, oversimplifying it. But you you get the point. But yeah, yeah. Any 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 broad trend, you can always find contra- you know, ones that don't fit. But of I think course. in terms of a broad trend, that A makes sense. And the B is kind of interesting that it does really echo what we see in the public markets. Because I think this is the one thing, you know, for it, so I don't, you know, I'll be interested in your insight. I, I think you know, we've seen the public markets come off in the last sort of four months, and it may be too soon to see data in private companies, but everyone's saying everything's been beat in November, even before the current crisis in Ukraine, which is going to mess up everything in, t- in terms of valuation assessments. Uh, have you seen sort of, uh, is it too quick, soon to see a move, comparable move in private markets? Yeah, I think that we we haven't seen that yet. So... It's a really good point because there's kind of this liquidity delay, isn't there? And 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 you you don't get what's quite interesting is if you look at the chart of I don't know if you look at the FTSE All Share in well over any time period and you look at extreme events and you see very sharp corrections and very sharp recoveries, or you may not. You you know you may see a 
a correction and then, you know, a, a slow recovery. But I think where you see a sharp correction, a sharp recovery, maybe to an extent the private markets just miss out that blip altogether. Yeah, I suspect that's what happened in 2020 where we had that exactly. corona crash and then exactly. three months later or six months, depending where you are, the stock markets were had picked that back up. It, correct. And I think what happened, you know, if you look at if you look at the private markets, what actually happened was that that deals just stopped happening. I mean, they didn't stop happening, but deal volumes, you know, when we look at our data in terms of, you know, if you uh, April, May, June, deal volumes were down about two thirds. So actually, you had very limited, you know, you, you had kind of limited information to uh, to come to sort of robust conclusions. But I guess the point was that. You know, if you're if you're a public company, there's always a price out there. There's always a a, a bid and an offer. If you're a private company, you, there may not be because it's just it's just a case of well, we're not going to do the deal. You know, we do, we we don't have to price it today because we're not going to do the deal. We're gonna we're gonna wait and see how things pan out, and then we'll come back. And if things pan out okay, I don't know. We'll maybe honour the price that we offered beforehand, but. You lose a lot of the the information that you will get on a daily basis in the public markets. Don't have that benefit in the private markets. So, yeah, it's very difficult to know when stuff happens in the public markets whether it will filter through to the private markets, or whether it will kind of. By the time it filters through, the public markets have recovered and everyone's feeling better. <laughs> you know, and 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 pricing just holds up, and you don't see it. Yeah, and obviously there's an interaction in the sense in that public market, public companies tend to be acquirers of private companies. To yeah. realize, I, I've just realized I don't know in terms of proportion how significant that are. Public, do public companies do a lot of private company yeah. transactions relative to private companies or as buyers, or are they just a small proportion? No, it's a, it's pretty big. So in the UK, I think last time I checked in the UK, it's about twenty five to thirty percent. And in the U.S., it's a bit higher than that. You know, it's it's it tends to trend above thirty percent. So yeah, you do, you know, you get a lot of, you know, that I guess that's a, it's a key growth strategy for public company, particularly smaller public companies, growth through acquisition. And this maybe this is us. Maybe we we we're we're going to talk about this later. But this whole idea that you can, you know, if 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 your stock is rated on on a a multiple of 15 times you can buy a private company and uh, for 10 times and voila immediately you get that um yeah. well, well that I, I've, heard, I've heard several variations on this variation this valuation arbitrage recently because yes that's clearly one thing where private companies tend to trade you you, you can correct me on, on this you, know, you might have had before I can forget. they trade on lower multiples than quoted companies broadly speaking Mm-hmm. You know, it, and and that's rational because there is a liquidity sort of discount in private yeah. companies, or illiquidity discount, or, yeah. or premium, depending on which way you're looking at it. So yeah, so so you can almost sort of like you know boost yourselves. And I've heard the same thing happen in other private companies. So someone was saying, if you're going around buying Amazon businesses, so all these Amazon FBA businesses, so you can yeah. buy these on three or four times annual things but if you've if you're a business that's got a lot of them as a private company you can be quote, then quoted on eight or ten times so even yeah. then you'd saying okay i'm taking this business four times but if i've got 50 of them or 20 of them i get this multiple uplift 
Yeah, yeah. But but I guess I and and that's absolutely right. And that feels like a pretty straightforward way to increase your your share price. I guess that that's also happening in the private markets where you know you've got a buy and build strategy where you buy a platform asset, which is, I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, you buy a platform asset for 50 million quid and you pay 10 times EBITDA for that asset. And then you buy a bunch of other, you buy a bunch of bolt-on companies that are much, much smaller. So you buy a bunch of bolt-ons for 5 million pounds and you're paying six or seven times EBITDA for those for those companies. And that's exactly the same thing, isn't it? Because, you know, the bigger private company attracts a higher multiple for size, all other things being equal. And then the smaller private companies are sold on a lower multiple, but you jam them all together and you get the, you know, you benefit from that valuation that valuation arbitrage that you're talking about. And do, and do you see a lot of this in the data? Do, are a lot of companies doing this sort of thing? Yeah. Yes, a lot. So, so I would say that, you know, most of the private equity customers that we that we speak to are doing buy and build strategies or a variation on that on that theme because it's a you know it's a key driver of um, you know that kind of value creation in, the, in their in their portfolio companies, and I think what that's doing, which is really interesting, it's increasing competition for assets lower down the market. So where traditionally, uh, uh, you know, a mid-market private equity house might be buying assets for, I don't know, it depends on how you define mid-market now, doesn't it? But let's say they're buying companies for enterprise values of between 50 and 250 million, and therefore sub-50 million wasn't in the crosshairs of private equity. Now, now it is via the portfolio companies, because the portfolio companies, it's, it's, it's a way to accelerate that growth is dipping down into that bit of the market and picking up some assets. So what's really interesting is that it it that increases competition for those smaller assets and increased competition for those assets you see the prices moving as well. So it's really interesting how how th- th- there's almost no part I mean obviously there's there's going to be a bit of a size threshold but it's almost like the 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 whole of the market now is of interest to private equity, either directly or through their portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I think you know th- there's always been overlap, but I think particularly between venture capital and private equity, and there's always been sort of you know that that that, that, that sort of low market whatever mm-hmm. where there's been overlap, but it's never really been that big. And I I am here. I heard more noise about. Yeah, you know, I, I think particularly Fed for Capital Series A, Series B, C rounds have got bigger, yeah. uh, and you're seeing private equity players, you know, expressing interest in those. So there's, so there's definitely more overlap in that market, but it's interesting if they're coming, you know, right down. Yeah, and I think it's, I guess it's important to differentiate between traditional private equity, which is, you know, which is buying established trading companies with a mixture of equity and, and debt and the kind of venture market, which is, you know, a venture and growth capital to fund earlier stage companies that, you know, that need that capital for growth. And, you know, I guess that's maybe the, the distinction there that 
whilst those private traditional private equity players will be coming further down the market perhaps via their through their portfolio companies to buy stuff they're they're buying established businesses just small businesses established profitable companies whereas you know the venture capital side is really backing what will probably be loss-making companies. So they're still really in, even though the size may overlap more, they're really, they st- still really are looking at different things or different parts of the market. Yeah, definitely, definitely, absolutely. And you know, arguably, arguably, the you know the company that they're buying, which has um, ten million of you know the traditional private equity is buying through one of their portfolio companies that has ten million of revenue and two million of EBITDA. Is is worth is being valued at a far lower number than the early stage company that's got mm-hmm. no revenue or a million <laughs> quid of revenue, but the potential to be a unicorn. Yes. So, um, but yeah, very very different, very different assets, very different risk profiles. Yeah, and 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 so so when you're looking at valuation data, how easy is it for you to differentiate between? Well, in one sense, it is really easy to differentiate. But do you do you look at soft factors and try and try and understand why valuations are happening, or again, is that something you leave to the clients and say, okay, that's that's your area? Yeah, we sort of leave it to the customers, Brian. But but you know, we do provide in some of our content, we do provide some narrative because I guess that. What's quite interesting is if you have two very similar companies and one sells for uh, 15 times EBITDA and one sells for 10 times, then what you want to be able to do is present data in such a way that allows the customer to say, okay, well, I understand why that one's 15, that one's 10. And it could come down to, uh, well, I guess a common thing is is the growth, you know, the one that's sold for 15 times is growing at 20% a year. The one that's sold for 10 times is growing at GDP or something like that. So I think it's about, you know, we, we, don't, we don't know why that one sold for 15 and that one sold for 10. But if we give you all of the data, you can come to your own conclusions about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, so sometimes, sometimes in the quoted market, you see things where management almost has an aura or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, Tesla, to pick, pick an example in the current markets where, you know, clearly Elon Musk has this huge fan base who are going to support him kind of through thick and thin. Um, yeah. Although, you know, thin would have, eventually will grind people down. But Or, or clo- closer to home, you've got, you know, Kazoo, you know, the fa- I, think, I think that was kind of billed as the fastest ever unicorn. Or the fact, you know, the... the, the it got to unicorn status faster than any other UK company, certainly. And that was Alex Chesterman. You know, that was the aura around him and what he had done with uh, Zoopla and Love Film. And, you know, you're backing somebody that's created very valuable businesses before and is applying similar principles in a new in a new market. So, yeah, I guess that's the ultimate soft factor, isn't it? It's like, here is somebody, I'm, I've got a choice of backing two different people. It's exactly the same business plan, but one of them has done this twice before and has made super returns for shareholders. I'm going to back that one. But you pay up for it. You pay up for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see how much you, uh, if you could find a direct like for like to actually say how much you are paying up. That would be, 
That might be an interesting it, exercise. Yeah, it would, it would, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, you, you probably could do that. I mean, you could look at the, you know, Kazoo isn't the only sort of disruptive car retailer out there, but it's the only one with Alex Chesterman at the helm. So, you know, you could sort of benchmark it against other ones and say, you know, what are... You know, you'd obviously have to do it on a like-for-like basis. You know, when they're when you know when they've all done their Series A. You know, what was Kazoo's Series <laughs> yeah. A versus I don't know Car Wow's Series A or oh. something like that. I, I don't have them to hand. Yeah. So, so, so something that we've passed over was sort of current level valuations, and and as I say, there's this feeling that everything's a bubble at the moment. And all right, maybe things aren't quite as much of a bubble as they were before Mr. Putin wandered over the border or whatever. Do you have a view yourself on to what extent you know, valuations are high, valuations in a bubble? I mean, do you have some sort of historical perspective or, you know, it's an all right, maybe things aren't quite as much of a bubble as they were before Mr. Putin wandered over the border or whatever? I suppose, again, and I'm, I'm not dodging the question, Brian, but I guess it depends where you look in the market. So, you know, you've got lots of, you know, one of our, uh, one of our backers, you know, uh, you know, we've got three. We're backed by three VCs, and and they're seeing prices being. You know, the, there's a there's a big US investor that is deploying a lot of capital in early stage companies in the UK, or they were last year and the year before. They were, I guess, they were sort of. Well, I I, I don't know enough about their approach, but I think they were taking some very sort of. They were importing some kind of Silicon Valley type valuations which I, I think maybe a lot of people felt that those would be hard to live with, those valuations would be hard to live with, and and it was perhaps difficult to see how, you know, how they were going to make a sort of venture capital type return when your entry valuation is so high. So there's definitely, you know, there's definitely potential bubble territory there. I, I, I mean, I guess when you know, just coming back to our valuation discussion on that kind of company, you know, you're not valuing it on its fundamentals. You're not valuing it on a multiple of EBITDA. You're probably not valuing it on a multiple of revenue because otherwise the revenue multiple would look crazy. So for the really early stage stuff, I guess what you're saying is, what does this business have the potential to be worth in the future? And what what is my required rate of return? So given the risk profile of this, I need to see a pathway to making 100 times my money on this. And therefore, I'm going to work back and that's my entry valuation. So, and I'm going to do that across 50 companies. And one of them will hopefully shoot the lights out and deliver that. And the rest won't, but I'm getting all my portfolio returned from that one star. And I'm, I'm backing 50 because that's the model, you know, I'm I'm only going to get one right, so I'm going <laughs> to yeah. back 50. You know, if you think about it like that, it sounds quite simple. It's kind of, well, I believe that in 10 years, this company is going to be doing 200 million of revenue and companies like this are worth five times revenue. So in f- 10 years, it's going to be worth a billion. And uh, this has to be a 10x for me or a 50x for me or whatever, so that means that the entry valuation is 20 and I'm putting in 5 million to get it to the next stage. So the pre-money is 15 and the, what else have you got? You know, that's, you can't say, well, you know, we think this is a, this is 
10 times revenue or whatever. You know, you can at a later stage than that, but at that very early stage, you can't do that. So does that have the potential to be in bubble territory? I mean, yes, I mean, absolutely. But I suppose that when it comes down to companies that are being valued on their fundamentals, you know, for companies that are generating revenues, for companies that are uh, generating profits and are being valued on a multiple of those revenues or profits, that doesn't really feel like bubble territory. And I think that whenever, when, well, sorry, this is just a personal point of view. Whenever I think about valuations, I think it's, you know, you always have to have that discussion in the context of growth. So, you know, if we've both got a company and my company's worth, you know, coming back to that kind of 15 times versus 10 times, I'd rather buy the company that's on 15 times if it's growing at 20% than the company that's on 10 times but is growing at 2%. Because if I buy the company on 15 times that's growing at 20%, its profits at 20%, in two years' time, that's going to be on 10 times. And it's still, you know, and I believe in the long-term growth story. So that, you know, it's that whole sort of growth fee value discussion. I guess, again, it's just about segmenting the market, Brian, and saying, well, does does that asset class look expensive? And, you know, a lot of venture stuff undoubtedly looks really expensive. Do you think it looks more expensive than it did, say, three years ago? Yeah, definitely. Right. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And I think that there may be a couple of things going on there. There's the general, there's the, the there's the weight of money. Absolutely. And the, I, I, I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's one of the big stories of the pandemic has been the absolute weight of money going into private markets, yeah, which seems exactly. like it's just gone up. Exactly. But I think that's, uh, you know, that's like a mega trend, I think. You know, th- this whole shift of capital from public to private, private markets. So you've got, you've got that huge weight of money that's pushing stuff up. And then I guess you've also got, and I think you, you mentioned this, it's like moving the dials on what's a seed investment investment, what's Series A and so on. So, so it's like, well, let's take a Series A investment used to be like two to three million. And traditionally you'd take, I, I'm slightly plucking numbers out there, but it's like traditionally you'd take 20% yeah. the Series A. So traditionally we're talking three, five years ago. Exactly. And then, but if that Series A is now 5 million, I'm not sure that 20% number has moved too much. No, so, I don't think it has. So, so, if anything, so what it's gone ha- down. Well, exactly. So, so what happens is that your your pre money valuation goes from if you're buying twenty percent for three million, that's a fifty million post. If you're buying twenty percent for five, that's a twenty five million post. So, you, there's definitely been that upward pressure, and that's definitely been part of the reason for that. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. It does kind of confirm what people are saying in the market, that people just seem to be talking more and more about valuations and, and they're becoming less and less comfortable with it. But it's interesting to get someone who's actually seen some some data to get uh, a sensation of it. Yeah, and I think the thing is, you know, just coming back to this wall of money, you know, people, there's, there's this, I think it's $2 trillion bandied around as, you know, dry powder, that's out there. And and I guess that, you know, most of that will be in 10-year funds. So so it has it has to be spent. It has to be deployed. 
But most it's of that's in PE as well, I think. Well, yeah, true, true. That's absolutely true. But 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 even then, if you if you you know, maybe maybe you don't really have the option of sitting back and you gotta you gotta put it to work. Yeah, yeah. A couple of fund managers quoted Chuck Prince at me recently about his you know, when the when the music's playing, you gotta get up and dance. Uh, and as a fund manager, if people give you money to invest, you're kind of obliged to invest it. You, you, you do your best you can within the market at the time, but at the same time, you've you just got to play along. If they're giving you the capital, they're doing the asset allocation. So they've decided that they want to be in mid-market private equity or early stage VC or growth or UK smaller companies or whatever. So you can't just sit on cash and say, well, we thought this is the best thing to do. It's like, no, no, we gave you this capital to invest in this asset. We'll worry about our cash holding. You, you go and invest that in what you said you were going to invest in. But presumably also, I think the large institutions, probably more than retails, are doing temporal diversification in that if you're allocating yeah. over 10 years, you're investing in that money every 10 years. So you know in that's going to cross a cycle and you'll get better value out of some point and worse value in another. One of the worries I have about retail market is whether people are doing that. So you mean whether people are... EIS, VCT investors, yeah, are sort of, yeah. whether they're actually thinking in terms of multi-year spreading them. They're sitting on the sidelines and maybe thinking, feels toppy, I won't. I don't know if they Well, I think the volume going into markets at the moment suggests, I mean, VCT sales have flown off the shelves. Right now, they're clearly investing you know, a lot of money at the point where people saying valuations are high. Now, yeah. if, if that's part of every year you're doing your 10 or 20 or 50,000 into VCT, that's probably okay. If this is your one of your two payments into VCTs over a decade, it's not yeah. so good. It's all right. Maybe things aren't quite as much of a bubble as they were before Mr. Putin wandered over the border or whatever. Yeah. So what you're talking about is... is uh, dollar cost averaging. Yes, effectively. Yes. Yeah, 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 I agree. So we, we've chatted a lot on valuations. What I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So I'll throw these at you. Obviously, you're not a fund manager anymore. I'll, I'll, I'll drop the, the fund manager ones, but we'll ask the others and see if you can get your thoughts. So tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from it? Uh, so I... I mean, there have been so many, so many failures. And I've got, you know, I've made a couple of disastrous investments. I mean, really disastrous investments, you know, sort of setting up mark to market and, you know, lots and lots of failures along the way. Probably a big, probably a big one that predates all of that is I really wanted, when I was growing up, I really wanted to be an architect. And I got a place at the university I wanted to go to, 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 study architecture and I got there and I was hopeless at it. <laughs> I, was, I was useless and it very quickly dawned on me that I wasn't going to be the next Norman Foster or Lord Rogers so so I I, I left because uh, I yeah I did it's what, what I'd wanted to do for a long time and anyway I, I realized that I was I was no use at it and um well, I suppose I learned that I wasn't very good, very good at drawing buildings, probably. But I suppose you've got to, you've got to realise when you're maybe maybe what I learned is you've got to realise when you're, you're flogging a dead horse and 
you've got to move on and you've got to cut your losses. And I suppose that's what I did. Yeah, no, I think well done on that because I know I think it's probably one of my personal failings that I don't. I have a couple of things where I haven't cut my loss when it's a couple of years <laughs> year later, and you're like, "Why yeah. didn't just do that yeah. when I first thought that?" <laughs> yeah. So the EIS and VCC industry that we work at is is far from perfect, although it's really good in many ways. What would you change about it as someone who was heavily involved and now is slightly distant? Yeah. Now? Yeah, I, I think that one 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 frustration I always had was the, was the, just the perception or the kind of risk perception. It depends on I guess it depends on your worldview, but I never thought that. So, for example, when we had we had an uh, we had a, an AIM VCT, and I think the sort of the weighted average market capitalization of of the companies in the portfolio was I don't remember, but it was it was I'm pretty sure it was like seventy or eighty million pounds or something. And I always felt that if somebody, if you approach somebody and said, look, I've got a portfolio of 50 companies, each one is worth between 70 or eight, uh, and 80 million pounds, how risky does that sound to you? I, I, I kind of feel the response might be, well, that doesn't sound too risky at all. But if you, but if you put that on the, the kind of risk matrix of a, uh, an advisor, then it would be, you know, it'd be a 10 you know, it'd be it'd be a ten, and then if if you then take EIS stuff, which you know tends to be even earlier stage, then it would be off the scales. And therefore, I think that, and I, I realize I'm getting into dangerous territory here because I'm not a sort of a, a you know, a, a financial advice, you know, a, a wealth manager or, or IFA. But I always felt that, you know, the, the the universe of people that should have this kind of asset in their portfolio should be much much larger. And I'm not saying you you know you 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 tip everything in, but everybody should have exposure to it, and everyone should have exposure to it because, number one, the the the, the tax breaks are just so good. You know, if you're in you know you're investing in an asset class with EIS where you've got this incredibly asymmetric risk return profile. You know, you're putting. 40p in the pound at risk with the tax breaks or whatever, by the time you take into account loss relief and et cetera, but you've got unlimited upside potential. So that feels pretty good to me. And the second thing is just this, this, this potential to make outsized returns. And so, yes, they're more risky than having a portfolio of gilts and FTSE 100 companies, but when you factor in the, the tax advantages and the potential upside, it just feels that people are being scared away from it unnecessarily because, you know, we could say today, we could say, well, we're worried. We don't like risk assets. So we'll just, we'll put the whole lot in a post office savings account and that's not risky at all. Well, if inflation's at 5% and you're earning half a percent on that, that is risky because you're just eroding your capital. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a big risk in not taking enough risk and therefore i feel that the that more portfolios should have an allowance for a bit of eis a bit of vct i think that's the i think that's maybe the big thing for me. maybe another thing brian is that is when I, uh, I you know when we started mark to market it would have been quite nice for uh, maybe this maybe this is a, a going a bit far but it would have been quite nice to get some tax breaks for the capital that i Putin, you know, you're mm. you're always investing at higher valuation. As a founder's capital, yeah. Uh, exactly, and maybe that's appropriate, but um, um, I think uh, that would have been quite good. And then maybe 
maybe some secondary market tax breaks or something like that to improve liquidity. In you know, if you think about the the, the volume of capital that's gone into tax efficient investments that is kind of lock, a bit locked up until those businesses exit to create some kind of secondary market there. You know, if you had some kind of tax break for buyers existing shares in EIS backed companies, that could be, you know, that that could certainly improve that that liquidity. Yeah, for what it's worth, I did say something in our submission for the patient capital review. I did suggest something about secondary markets. Actually, for VCT, okay. I thought VCTs in particular would lend that to very easily, but obviously, they they didn't listen to me. Try. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be nice to improve liquidity of VCTs. Uh, the secondary market and VCTs would be cool as well. Yeah. So, as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. Are there any books that you have recently read or? Would really like and would recommend to people. Um, well, maybe on the on the startup. Whilst we're on the 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 business theme, have you read Blood Money? No. Which is which is the story of um, Theranos? Oh, Bad um, Blood. Uh, bad Blood. Sorry, Bad Blood. Yeah, I think Blood Money is a different book. But it's. Uh, uh, it, have you read? I have, have read, read that bad one. Blood? Oh, it's, yeah. it, it, it's fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was very good. I thought I, maybe a little one-sided. I think um, I thought it was very interesting, but you know the whole "fake it till you make it" culture. But just taking um, a bit too far. Or I think a lot too far. A, I think they took it a bit. I think yeah, I think they took it a wee bit too far. But it's it very good. It's a good read. So, what do you wish you knew when you started looking venture capital that you know now? I think maybe that that kind of everything is really about execution. I think that ideas are quite easy, really. You know, we've all got hundreds of ideas about great things that we'd like to create and do. But executing on those is, that's the really difficult bit. And maybe that's what I, I, I underestimated is the kind of the, the, the persistence that you need just to keep keep moving forward. Yeah. Because it's interesting, you haven't gone from a fund you usually a fund manager where in theory you would expect you to know all this about the industry before you became a founder. Um, <laughs> yes, you would. Well, you? Oh, you I know the theory, I but not necessarily practice. I wasn't paying attention enough, probably. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have. I, I guess I, I had maybe I didn't sympathise enough with entrepreneurs when I was doing when I was investing, and the you know the the, the patience that you need as an investor as well, and the, the sort of support and a bit more humility, maybe. Well, that's something that the fund management industry, generally speaking, my experience of it struggles with a little bit at uh, times. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I, I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> on that. Right? In my experience as a former fund manager myself. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Marshall Market, where should they go? Well, they can contact me. Uh, I'm uh, Doug, D-O-U-G, at marktomarket.io. Or you can have a look at the website, which is www.marktomarket.io. And we'll post both of those in the show notes so people can find them easily. Fantastic. Excellent. So thank you very much for coming on today, Doug. That's been in- interesting, in both in co- talking about actually a real business and also getting a perspective on the market. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. Really enjoyed it. So we hope you enjoyed that. 
If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.